Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Well, it was in 1989, and the internet already existed and that you could send email, but there was no websites. So there was no HTTP, there was no HTML, there was no space or things you could click through. And it began because I was frustrated it didn't exist. I imagined a system where you could just click from one to the other. And that was so compelling that I decided that I wanted to uh, build it. In March 1989, the British computer scientist Sir Tim Berners-Lee laid out a set of plans that would soon be known as the World Wide Web. And I don't think it would be too dramatic to say that the world was forever changed. An awful lot of good has come from the invention of the World Wide Web. Personally, I'm grateful for the ability to play video games with my siblings who live hours away and the effects that online retail has had on my wardrobe. The dissemination of information, in particular, has become incredibly easy. People living on opposite sides of the world can connect instantly through email or on social media platforms. We can apply for jobs or look for new places to live, or research for a homework project without having to find and trawl through books. But there were consequences that followed the inception of the World Wide Web that even its inventor didn't envisage. Before, it was really built with the goal of eliminating hierarchy in communications, built with the very explicit goal of spreading out audiences. And yet, if we look around, that's actually not what's happened. Worldwide, we have um, a handful of sites in the United States. It's it's three or four sites that get uh, about a third of the digital audience, about two-thirds of digital revenue, actually a little more than that now, and uh, three-thirds, or more than 100% of net profits. Yes, a wealth of information is now more readily available, but the source and validity of that information has changed. And the World Wide Web as it currently stands is dominated by a few big names. Google is grabbing headlines once again today with its $1.65 billion US buy-up of YouTube. Facebook has bought the mobile messaging service WhatsApp for $19 billion in cash and stock. Instagram, a company with only 13 employees, bought today by Facebook for $1 billion. Google is buying DeepMind, an artificial intelligence company for an unknown amount of money. But some think that the World Wide Web has had a negative effect on the traditional news industry and perhaps even our access to a fair democracy. 
Tonight, after more than a year under fire for how it delivers information to users, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg announcing what he's calling a major change to your newsfeed. Here's what you can expect to see. More posts, photos, and videos from your friends and family. That means less content from businesses, brands, and fewer news articles, too. So how did we get here? How did we reach a point where tech firms like Facebook and Google determined our habits when it comes to reading the news? The internet is part of a broader shift going all the way back in the United States uh, to cable that takes the audience of broadcast news and uh, print and increasingly shifts that onto entertainment. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and this week I chat to the author of a new book that examines the negative effects of the kind of economy that rules online and whether there's anything we can do to retake the news. This is Chips With Everything. We've kept you waiting as well, I think, so <laughs> it's only fair. Well, I, I, think, I think that's fair play. Uh, <laughs> sorry again about, uh, about the, the mix-up this morning. No, please don't worry about it. I hear you have a baby on the way, is that right? Uh, we do, yes. My wife and I are expecting our... Matthew Hindman is a professor of media and public affairs at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., my wife is fond of saying that my two babies are arriving within a few weeks of each other. So He is also the author of a new book, The Internet Trap, How the Digital Economy Builds Monopolies and Undermines Democracy. I think the biggest takeaway from the book is to understand how every single part of online advantage seems over and over again to benefit the sites um, and the firms that are already the biggest. Can we talk a little bit more about those companies that dominate then? In the US, you said it was maybe three or four sites. Can you tell us who they are? Google, Facebook, Amazon. Um, and within specific categories of content, you see other winners like for uh, online video, of course, it's firms like Netflix. For like short form communication, it's, it's Twitter. Um, so these are all very familiar household names. To understand the concept of personalized content, Let's turn to the classic example, Netflix. So Netflix uh, started out as a DVD by mail company, and they realized one of their core business concerns was figuring out how to get people to keep subscribing. Netflix customers started out having a list of four or five uh, movies that they wanted to see, and they very quickly exhausted that list. And in order for business, uh, for Netflix as a business to be a going concern, uh, they had to find ways of reaching people with movies that they hadn't signed up to see. So they actually put their money where their mouth was. They uh, offered a million dollar prize to any team of researchers that could increase their accuracy by 10%. So ultimately, this uh, prize after two years was won by a um, team of researchers at uh, AT&T Research Labs. What we've seen over time is that this algorithm is the core of Netflix's current business model. So what did we learn from the Netflix prize? The most important part of the Netflix prize was what's called singular value decomposition, which is a fancy way of saying that the computers looked at all these different people and all these different movies and found categories of movies and categories of people that mapped onto each other. But ultimately, what we end up with is a way of distilling the correlation amongst thousands and thousands of different items and millions of different people that we've never been able to see. And that ends up being really powerful for figuring out what people want and what they're going to do. At one point in the book, 
Matt says that in some ways, recommending news is like recommending movies, which I thought sounded a bit too catchy to be true. <laughs> I, it, it is, in fact, uh, quite true. Well, it turns out that the algorithms, if they have enough data, uh, work pretty much the same way. The challenge with news is that it is, and now wait for it, right? The news is, by definition, new. So the challenge with news is that um, you often don't have the data that you would need or want to give good personalized recommendations. So in order for news recommendation systems to work well, at, uh, at least some types of news recommendation systems to work well, you need more and more data uh, for them to work effectively. So what Google News ended up doing is starting off by just recommending for new users whatever was popular. Um, so because entertainment news is the most popular category of content, everyone who shows up on Google News for the first time gets recommended entertainment content. But as Google is able to, over time, learn their preferences, learn that you're never going to click on that story about Tom Cruise, the algorithm increasingly shifts you towards different categories of content um, that you've shown interest in in the past. So you say that Facebook and Google have created this kind of duopoly that has dwarfed traditional news organizations. But can we really blame big tech for the failure of traditional news? What have they actually done to it? I think it is true that when we look around the digital ecosystem, what we see is that Google and Facebook get the vast majority of the revenue and nearly all of the profit with uh, firms like uh, Amazon accounting for much of the rest. In some sense, that isn't their fault. That's just the way that digital audiences work. Newspapers in particular have long thought that they are more important in people's media diet than they actually are. Um, and so any talk about somehow uh, skimming revenue from Google or Facebook uh, is just going to result in Google and Facebook dropping news altogether. Google and Facebook are important to news, but news is not important to Google or Facebook. It's not a large portion of the content that they show. Um, and it's not a big, it's not a profit center for them. It's not a good chunk of their revenue. And in fact, what we've seen just over the last year is that a shift in Facebook's algorithm um, has dropped the number of referrals to news sites by more than half. And I think that's the danger here. Those shifts by the digital giants have enormous collateral implications throughout the entire digital ecosystem. I think that the challenge that we face today is that these digital firms are the least regulated large industries that we have ever had in modern history. In order to sustain the health of the economy and democracy more broadly, um, we need to find ways of making sure that these firms' choices serve the public good. As tempting as it might be to blame these giants of the tech world for all of the woes suffered by traditional news, there are other factors at play. The federal government starts rolling back net neutrality rules today. The Republican-led Federal Communications Commission voted to repeal the Obama-era regulations in December. Now, there are regulatory issues like those around net neutrality, you know, those sets of rules that are meant to ensure all data is treated equally and stop internet providers from deciding for us what they think we should see. Rules that the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, Ajit Pai, recently rolled back on. After the break, we'll look more at how the rise of tech monopolies has impacted democracy and why the likes of Facebook might be unwilling to tackle the very real issue 
of fake news. The fact is you can make a lot more money with extremely mediocre content than you can with a smaller amount of quality content. We'll be right back. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one of a kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Last year, The Guardian tracked all the deaths of young people due to knife crime and explored the themes that emerged in an award-winning series called Beyond the Blade. Why are they carrying a knife in an area where they know people but they feel like they have to acquit themselves from other people? We saw many people suffering, but we also saw many fighting back. We've got to start looking at how we talk and how we generalise and how we categorise just ordinary people that are poorer than other people or people who don't have as much as other people. For this new series, journalists from The Guardian travel to Bristol, Birmingham and Croydon in South London to listen to some of those people. Society tends to look down at young people once they've made a wrong choice and what we're saying by that is that we're writing them off. And rather than report on their conversations, we let them speak for themselves. When I come out of jail, I'd never been praised before I'd turned my life around. And when I come out and got praised for the work that I was doing, I thrived. That gap needs to be built up a, a bit sooner, you know? As opposed to... Yeah, just waiting to hear from hear from me because I'm waiting to hear from the next generation as well. So we're all waiting and there's no like action happening, happening, happening. If families are fractured, that has an impact on a young person. If a father and a mother get divorced, that has an impact on our young people. And I think the only way they know how to make people sit up and say, listen, there's a real problem going on here is by violence. To listen to all three episodes, head over to theguardian.com forward slash podcasts or subscribe by searching Beyond the Blade on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back to Chips With Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. This week, we've been exploring the relationship between the rise of the internet and the downfall of traditional news. The author of The Internet Trap, Matthew Heinemann, explains how big tech companies like Google and Facebook 
use techniques similar to those of the likes of Netflix's recommendation system to decide for us what news we see. Can you give us a question? Don't be rude. Can you no, give I'm us a question? Give you a I'm you, not going to give you a can question. You can you stay categorical? You are fake news. Sir, go ahead. Can you stay categorical? You can't escape talk of fake news. Even high-profile public figures keep showing up in our news and on social media to blame traditional news organisations for spreading disinformation. But of course, the internet is the real breeding ground for this kind of content. So the book argues that fake news is in part a function of the way in which uh, the economics of content uh, work online. The fact is, you can make a lot more money with extremely mediocre content than you can with a smaller amount of quality content. That's just the way the math works. And so it's no surprise that if we look at how the ecosystem has changed, we've seen an enormous audience shift to what's sometimes called clickbait, things that are very low effort, but titillating or sensational. Fake news online, though, is part of a broader system that what makes fake news so dangerous isn't the audience it builds on its own. It's the way in which it shapes the agenda in traditional media and the way that ultimately um, things that start out as false news stories on the margins of debate end up uh, making their way into the mouths of prominent mainstream politicians. Which are you? Are you a tech company? Or are you the world's largest publisher? Do we feel a responsibility for the content on our platform? The answer to that, I think, is clearly yes. And, but I don't think that that's incompatible with fundamentally at, at our core being a technology company where the main thing that we do is have engineers and build products. We've all seen the incredibly awkward videos of Mark Zuckerberg promising the United States Congress that Facebook will take more responsibility in the fight against fake news. But if what Matthew says is true, that content like fake news is just more profitable, then can we really expect these companies to put in much of an effort to stop it? I think the challenge regarding fake news is to shift the incentives of the largest digital companies. That's the biggest hurdle. If Facebook and Google suddenly found it in their interest to eliminate fake news, I guarantee you it would be gone within a year. If we're able to convince Google and Facebook that their best interest is to make sure that this truly false and pernicious content doesn't show up in their results at all, I am confident that they could make that happen or at least make it an annoyance, uh, not a systematic problem. Chances are you've already seen campaign ads, bumper stickers, and yard signs of your local congressmen and congresswomen. Yep, the midterm election season is upon us once again. If you didn't know, they're kind of a big deal. In less than two months, citizens of the United States will vote in a very heated midterm election. Hopefully, voters will make informed decisions. But where will they go for the information they need? News websites or their Facebook feed? As big, high-profile events approach, what tends to happen is that um, people have been sort of marginally connected, um, go to whatever source of news is most immediate. That does mean that, yes, um, people tend to get more internet news, but they also tend to get more news um, from cable, cable television. They tend to read the paper more closely. And I think that particularly in the current news cycle, though, where in the United States, every day is a week and every week is a year. <laughs> that this dynamic as the, as, and the shift of people to more and more digital news sources really changes the character of political conversations. 
as digital news organizations have been able to test every hour which content is going to get the most clicks, that really favors certain types of uh, stories and certain types of politicians over others. Say what you want about Donald Trump. Uh, he is eminently, eminently clickable. The internet trap seems to take a pretty pessimistic view. Is there no hope at all for news and for democracy? Dealing effectively with the problems of the digital age requires, first and foremost, an understanding of digital audiences. And if we're able to do that, I think we're going to be able to do a antitrust regulation or, or regulation of these firms in a smarter and more effective manner. Um, and there's a lot of interest now that there wasn't just a few years ago. And I think that's reason for optimism. People understand that this is a problem and they want to solve it. And I think with a better understanding of digital audiences, we're going to be a lot more effective in shaping the incentives of the digital firms that increasingly, like it or not, govern our lives. I'd like to thank Dr. Matthew Hindman for joining me this week. You can find a link to his book on this week's episode description on The Guardian website. For any questions or queries, especially if you're the lovely man we bumped into on the train last week, email us at chipspodcast at theguardian.com. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, I've changed my handle and lost my blue tick in the process, so if anyone listening works for Twitter, do let me know. You can find me at Jerrica Weber. That's J. Erica Weber. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.